Okay, welcome to week six of Significant. We've been enjoying uh, this collection. So there were significant moments through the journey of Jesus, right? And we hear these stories, and to us, they get normalized, right? Because it was in the past. It happened, right? And so it normalized it. And so some of the things that happened don't seem like a big deal, but they really were. And so we're kind of walking through the journey of Jesus and pulling out these significant moments that we probably missed, right, that were really important uh, to the journey that we're on. So when we do that, we can overlook, undervalue, and discount some of the things that happen. And it's not always in action. It's significant statements as well. Of course, he healed people and he did really cool stuff. He walked on water, as my joke I just used. You know, all, all of these things. But there were moments where it was a conversation that he had that was really significant. It was really important to us. Um, so Jesus came to introduce something brand new to the world for the world, a new covenant, a new command, ultimately a new movement, something they had never experienced before, right? Changed the world, shook it up. Governments were terrified of what was happening. All right, there is a profession that I feel never really gets enough credit, and if you know anybody that is in this profession, just thank them randomly because they need it because you have no idea. I have a friend who is an EMT, and it's kind of cool. He actually helped us start Village Heights, and then he became an EMT, and now he just sends me cool pictures of the things that, you know, legs like half, you know, falling off and that kind of stuff. Some of you might freak you out. I love that kind of stuff, right? And it's just so interesting to me how the body works and all. So he sends me things. But in EMTs, emergency medical technicians, um, they arrive on the scene, not knowing exactly what they're walking into really ever. They try to get as much information over 911 as possible, and they send that. But most of the time, they have no idea, especially when someone is in threat of, of their life. They just say something, right? They're like, just get here, right? And they're trying to get information. So they end up just showing up. And this is something that we normally do when something goes wrong that they don't do. They don't come on the scene and say, okay, first off, whose fault is it? Right? They're not assessing to see who to blame, who do, we, who do we shame before we help, right? No, they don't do that. They help immediately, okay? Even the weirdest things that could be said and thrown out, they just help, right? They immediately get to work. They don't debate over whose fault the injury was or anything like that. They just get to work. So previously, previously on Significant, right? It's like a TV show. Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple, which was a huge deal. Hannah did an amazing job last week of showing it. She got the, the cool one. Like she had the pictures and all that to show how big and crazy the temple was. And for this statement, as Jesus is walking away, like as the, the disciples were like, isn't this great? And he says, yeah, but there's something greater than the temple. And they're like, how? How is that possible? So Hannah set that up really well. If you missed it, it's online. Listen to it. It's on YouTube's. Um, that claim uh, made the temple obsolete. He predicted a day when it would happen. Um, the sacred would change, and it's end up not being about places, because it was all about places then. The Holy of Holies had to be special buildings that were built. We've kind of had tried to do that, force that now. Like The churches and the buildings and the bricks are holy. It has nothing to do with that. It has all to do with the people. 
not about places anymore. It's about people. So he illustrated it by sitting down with Matthew and various company and a, and a Samaritan woman. He disrupted the status quo, which was threatening to some and intriguing to others because they didn't totally understand it. And most assumed his end game was to declare himself as king. Actually, a lot of them were hoping for that. A lot of the Jews were banking on that he was going to come take over, overthrow Rome, and they would be in control again, or some semblance of that. That's what they were hoping for. Because in their context, in their world, that's how you gained control. You overthrew a government, and you made your own rules. And that's kind of what they were hoping for. The more discerning sensed something else was happening, he spoke with authority but refused to take charge. He won the crown. I mean, he won the crowd, but refused a crown. He wielded extraordinary power and made that evident, but never used it for himself. He was intriguing for sure. And Jesus attracted the attention of key individuals. Again, to us, it's normal. In this time, it was far from normal. It was confusing, bewildering, to the point where they would normally get mad and call him a heretic, but it was so confusing, it was like, we don't even know what to do with this guy. He's saying things and stumping us as if he knows the script before it goes out, like he knows the episode or something. And it's, it's confusing, but it's intriguing to them. It catches their attention. They don't really know what to do with them. So we're going to be in John today. We're going to start in John 3, 1 through 10, and then 14 through 15. It says, now... There was a Pharisee. This is one of the people he got the attention of. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, Nicodemus had risen through the ranks of uh, Jewish politicians, and, and he, was just like, he was like one of the guys, right? He, he was one of the ones that they put on a pedestal, lifted up. He's the example, all, all this stuff. He became a man uh, of influence, and he was a part of something I don't know how you, however you want to pronounce it. You can pronounce it Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin. It doesn't really matter. But basically, it was 20 to 70 men that sat on this council, and it was like Parliament, Supreme Court, and the Vatican all rolled up into one. They had a lot of power, right? It was a very important seat to be on. And if you got to this seat, if you got to be one of these, you ran things. People like, oh, did you see when you walked into a room, right? That, that's how, the, how he was treated. In this group, they represented the nation of Israel to, to Rome. So they would speak on the behalf of God's people to Rome. Now, you can kind of understand the inflated feeling and the responsibility that that would give somebody. And so kind of just give you a mindset of, of where we're at with Nicodemus. So verse 2 says, he came to Jesus at night. So John considered this important to point out, and, and I, I agree. I think it was a good fact to point, a very important detail to show that Nicodemus was curious and he had questions, but we find out later he never actually got to ask these questions, right? And so because of Nicodemus's position and you have this rogue teacher that they would call teacher, rabbi, you know, prophetic, all these things. He was emulating all this stuff. This rogue teacher, 
and he would, it would be political suicide to be seen with this person, right? Because you're part of the Sanhedrin. You're, you're up here, and he's down there. And why would you associate with the enemy, right? Someone that's trying to take apart and destroy what you have going on, right? So he saw him at night. He wanted to do it in the cover of night. Okay, we'll continue on in verse 2. And it says, and, and uh, he, came, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, right? It's obvious. You've done some cool stuff. For now, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Um, this is a remarkable admission. For him to admit this, he, I would imagine he was almost choking it out, right? Because like, he's like, to make such a large claim, it would actually diminish Nicodemus, which is not something you did as a, as a Jewish politician. So then Jesus uh, did the Jesus thing, and he answered the question behind the question, and it's mostly before the question was even asked. Like, he knew what Nicodemus was going to ask and what he was wondering. They were all wondering the same thing. Should they respect this guy, or should they be afraid of this guy, right? He had a lot of questions. We don't even... Jesus cut him off, right? When you have valuable information and somebody that you care about comes to you and you know that they're not in that headspace, what do you do? Hey, I know, I know you're on, like you have an idea or a question, but that's got to wait. I got to tell you something that's more important. There's a timeline here, and I need you to be a part of it, okay? That's kind of what's happening here with Jesus. He kind of, he cuts them off. He has some questions, right? So Jesus replied, it's like, again, it's like he knew the script and deleted half of it and just jumps to the catch, jumps to the end. It says, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. <laughs> Nicodemus here, he's like, man, I, I just, I just got here. What? Like, how, where did, did it, did I miss something? Like, how did, why did you get, this? it's confusing. He's like, immediately throws this statement at him, right? So he wouldn't see or recognize God unless he was born again. That's what he's telling him. So this language was confusing. To us, it sounds normal because we've heard this before. But in this time, it's confusing. He's saying that John the Baptist said to repent in preparation of new birth. That's kind of the, that's why we baptize. It's a representation of what's happening on the inside. It's to show people on the outside, hey, I have been born again. So I have gone under and now I've come out a new person. So John the Baptist was kind of paving the way for this. Uh, the citizenship in the kingdom was considered a Jewish birthright. So for him to tell him, a, someone that's Jewish, who was since birth told, you are God's people and nothing can change that. Now he's being told by this rogue teacher that they can't deny is from God because of the cool things that this teacher has done, right? Can't deny it. And now this teacher is telling him, you don't have immediate passage to the Father. That would be blasphemy, right? That would be her heresy. But you can't deny what he's seen. You have, now he's saying you have to be born again. Jesus said you must be born again or from above. There's a second requirement now. And I would imagine the confidence that Nicodemus had. He probably chuckled. He's like, oh, what? <laughs> Come on, right? And this is what he continues with. In verse 4, it says, how can someone be born when they are old? 
That's a valid question, okay? <laughs> Very valid. You're like, I don't think my mom's going to like that, okay? Um, she's probably, you know, doesn't want to experience that again, and especially not at my size, okay? So it's like this confusing. The math doesn't add up. Uh, how, you know, how can someone be born again, Nicodemus asked. And he said, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. When people say the Bible is not fun, it's got humor. It's got danger. It's got, you know, it's a little bit of gore to it. You know, and people, it's, it, it covers all the bases, a little bit of romantic comedy in there. All right, so, and, <laughs> and he's probably thinking, and why are we talking about this? I got a list of questions. The Sanhedrin, my family, wants to know what's going on, right? It's like, this is weird. Totally derailed them. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. He kind of changes the verb from see to enter because he's like, I, I need you to understand this. It's not just about being able to visualize. It's about passage, entering. There's a gate. It's probably a key, a gatekeeper, right? And you can't get into the party unless you're born again. Okay, it's super confusing. I, I'm sure he's just kind of bewildered and staring up the sky like, who is this guy? And where, where, What am I doing here, right? So uh, you can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Again, he's probably like, guys, I, what? I don't want to know. I, okay, I, I, it's, confu- it's intriguing. I, now, now you have me intrigued. Okay, and his point is that physical birth got you into the kingdom of Israel, but something else is required to get you to the kingdom of God. Kingdom of Israel is earthly. Kingdom of God is much bigger and more vast than something you don't understand. And so Jesus, I imagine, chuckles. <laughs> you of all, like he's probably looking at me like, you of all people should get this. You are very educated. You have all the scrolls. You, you read them through, y'all debate, y'all argue over them, you decide how you're going to carry them out. Like you should know better than anybody. Right? And he continues on. He says, You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now he's talking about the wind. God established uh, an exclusive covenant with Abraham's offspring. This was great, and they, they took advantage of it, which is fine. God put it out there. But God is not exclusive. So Israel wanted to take God. He's like, oh, he's, he's ours. Can't share him. He's nobody else's. Right? And so we talked about this a couple weeks ago. When it starts coming up that anybody can enter the kingdom of heaven, all the Jewish people, the people of Israel are going, wait a minute, other people? I thought that was one of our things is that we didn't allow other people. Now I got to let them in? They're, they haven't gone through the physical rituals that I've gone through. Get the meat cleaver quick, right? They, like, we, they got to be brought in. You know, talking about other things. If you don't know, I'll explain it later. Um, they, they, and that's why they start beginning to do that. Because, like, we've gone through things. We've earned this, right? I was born into this. Now we got to let others in? You can imagine 
they would be, you know, they wanted God to be exclusive to them, but he's not. And he's telling, Jesus is telling me, he says, he, he is spirit like the wind. You can feel the wind, but you don't really know where it comes from. You don't know how it, it really happens. So it, it emulates the wind. He moves outside the confines of the temple or our covenant. Our nation of Israel is a means to an end that will end. Now I'm giving you something better. The entrance requires a second birth, a spiritual birth. And so just like any of us who would be in Nicodemus's position and knowing all the things that you know and stand on it and are confident in it and you have pride in it, he goes, how can this be? Like, how did I miss it? You're telling me I should have caught this. How did I miss it? If it's that easy to see, how, how did I miss it? Jesus answers him. He says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? The conversation continues. Uh, Nicodemus is just bewildered but doesn't resist. Did you catch that part? Even though he's confused and he doesn't have all, he's not getting immediate answers that he was looking for. He's getting answers that are beyond his understanding, and he's trying to fathom it, right? But he didn't walk away. He says, no, you're crazy, and walk off because he can't deny the things that Jesus did. He can't deny it. Like he said in the very beginning, you're, you're obviously from God. So he's intrigued. He keeps, keeps his attention. A lot like us. Uh, there's something is there, and that's why you show up. That is what is inside of each of you and why you've decided to do, go to any church today or be a part of any church, right? These people are great, but there's great people all over the world. I'm not saying you have to be a believer to be a good person. In fact, that's one of the rubs, right? Like, I'm, I'm good. I'll get into heaven. Well, no, there's, there's passage, yeah. right? There, there's, there's, something has to happen, right? You can be and take, get the advantages of this earth when God has created, but not, if you want to go beyond, you want to get to the big kingdom, something has to be done. You got to serve the king, right? And so it's confusing to them, right? And it's why you show up. It's that thing inside of you that says, it's not just about me. There's something bigger than me, and I want to know more about it. So you come to church, you show up to church. Then Jesus leverages something familiar with them, right? And he says, you see this a lot in the New Testament. It doesn't mean a lot to you, but it meant a lot to them. All right, he continues on. He says, just as Moses, and Nicodemus is saying, okay, a name I know, finally, the, the guy, right? Let's talk about him. No, Moses, I know, right? He was a great lawgiver and a, and a great covenant maker, right? So uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and he's like, yep, I know that one, know that one well. We talk about it a lot. Israel had wandered into a snake-infested area while they were wandering the wilderness, and God told Moses to craft a, a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and those who looked up were saved by the snakes. Sometimes I get it's naive, it's not healthy. I get jealous of the early church because, to me, that is just so easy right? It's like, oh, there's snakes. Oh, God did this. And he put it on. And he said, look at the snake. You'll be fine. Wouldn't that be great if we could have those things? But then, of course, we're negating the fact that they're in the desert <laughs> and don't have a way to defend off poisonous, dangerous snakes, right? To the point where God's got to tell them, I'll make this thing. And just as long as you look at it, I'll, I'll keep you safe, right? It's about a following, 
a submission, right? Not trying to figure it out on your own. And so he's like, ah, I know this story, right? And continue on, verse 14, it says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's like, wait, you're the snake? Right? That's kind of what, he, that's kind of what he's saying. A man lifted up on a pole was cursed or sentenced to death. Are you catching that now? He foreshadowed what was going to happen. He says, if you, if you want to gain entrance, just like the snake in this small situation that's isolated and you understand it, the Son of Man is also going to be put on a pole. And if you look to him, you look to him and what he did on that pole, you can be saved. It really changes things, right? The significance of this nighttime conversation that Nicodemus was afraid to have in the public. And Jesus knew that. And he's like, oh, it's okay. I know. I don't want them to hurt you. Just come on. Come here. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to fill you in. I'm going to let you know. Significant. It really changes things. Nicodemus's theology didn't allow, and this is one of the biggest problems, did not allow the Messiah to be crucified. It did not allow that. God to them was powerful and and he he led with a a strong fist, right? And when they would talk about the fear of God, they're talking about respecting God. And they're like, no, you should be afraid of God, like literally afraid of him because you don't know what he's going to take your way, kind of do. That's kind of the relationship that they were having. So for to think that Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, could be crucified, could be executed was beyond him. He's like, that is a no go for me. So we continue on, verse 15, it says that, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Everyone has access to him now? I guarantee you didn't like that. It's like you're a part of an exclusive club that you get the benefits to, and then all of a sudden the club goes, hey, we're just going to open it to everybody. <laughs> that who didn't pay the price that you paid? That could be offensive. But well, that's not fair. I'm sure he's feeling these feelings. Wasn't life found through keeping the Torah and keeping the laws? And like, this is so new to them. Even though it's old, they didn't quite understand it in the way that they should. So it's new to them. It's been around. It's been talked about. So you continue on. And so now here's something to remember when reading the Gospels is that Jesus' teaching didn't make most of his teachings did not make sense prior to resurrection. We read them, make sense to us, because, you know, he, he resurrected. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, or that he actually resurrected from the dead, you know the story, and so when you hear about it and you read it, it's like, oh, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense that he said that because he did it, right? Usually in Scripture, this is what we find, that truth is stated... And now, because truth is stated, here's the outcome, right? We're, we're usually in reverse in the American language. I don't know why we do this, but we want to know everything and then give us the truth. We want to know all the factors and what it's going to require of us and then give us the truth. And then I'm going to decide I'm going to follow this truth based on these factors. If it makes me uncomfortable, if it makes me you know, do things that I don't want to do, if it makes me feel awkward, if it makes me step outside of my box, then I don't accept this truth. It's very, that should hit home with some of you. Uh, it's very, very uh, present in today's 
you know, life and everything that's going on around us. And so Jesus, what he was teaching didn't make sense, but there was a twist at the end that they did not expect. And writers, usually you find the Testament, it, it can be confusing, but writers would pause the story to comment based on what they knew the audience in the story didn't know because it hadn't happened yet, right? So when he's writing this, just like a narrator in a movie that you're watching, right? It's that point where it all freezes and the narrator comes up and he says, hey, let me, let me fill you in real quick so this moment means more to you, right? You, you understand the significance of this moment. And this is something, here's an example of it. In Luke 9, through 45, it says, listen carefully, he's quoting Jesus. He says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then he says, but they did not understand what this meant. He's narrating. He's telling us. He's like, he made this statement, but in the time when he made it, they didn't get it. They didn't fully understand it because they didn't know the outcome. We know the outcome, but they didn't know the outcome. So that's just a quick example right there for, for you to understand. So the conversation with Nicodemus is another example of this. John is on the other side and understood what Jesus was saying because he'd been following him and now he gets it, right? As he's retelling the story, he pulls out of the conversation temporarily, his retelling of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and he puts two and two together for his readers, almost in a way that he's like, I, I can't wait, I got to get it out. I, I, I got to tell you, right? I can't wait for you to hope that you get it at the end and you see the punchline. I got to tell you right now, right? He probably wasn't a good joke teller. Um, so John tells us in his own words that Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus, or Nick for short, whatever you want to call him, um, who doesn't possibly understand because it hadn't happened yet, right? So John felt this was too important to leave unclear. And the readers would get it eventually, but John, like I said, didn't want to wait. And so little did John know, I'm telling you, little did John know when he pinned this, this 26 Greek words that would have reverberated beyond the Roman Empire, the temple, and way beyond his generation into our generation um, to the point where wrestlers would use it as they're coming out, John 3, 16, right? And this is what he pinned right here. This would change the world. Now, you're not, you're, there's nothing wrong with you. This is Greek, okay? But this is what he wrote. And, and it, it could be possible that John, you know, he didn't probably didn't write it himself. Not everybody was as educated as they are today. There was special scribes. There was people that would, you know, you say it, they write it down, right? They were educated and they were very valuable. So he might have said it and it was wrote it, but this, this is it. These are the markings that would reverberate for 2,000 years and would change the lives of empires, the entire world. There would be crusades over these words. Then there would be great things over these words. There would be so much would happen. But John had no idea. He had no idea the effect that he was going to have. He had no idea. He did not know he was writing the Bible. The Bible didn't exist yet. It wasn't a thing yet. These were stories passed down of a, hey, you trust me, right? Let me tell you about Jesus. That's how it would go. 
He was documenting his experience. He had no idea that we would be analyzing this for thousands of years, dissecting it, pulling it apart, and trying to apply it to ourselves. He had no clue. So John continued. Now, I'm going to help I'm going to help you see what, what this was, okay? All right, don't worry. And I'm going to do a little backwards, okay? Again, because we like what it is first, the reason, and then what it is, right? Okay, so John continued. Looking back now, we understand that God did not, right? So he's, he's going backwards. So in John 3.17, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God didn't send his son to condemn the world. That would have been so confusing to Nicodemus and to anybody in that time because that's all they knew from God. The fist, right? The, the hard hand of, of, of ruling them. And so he didn't come to judge and pass sentence. He didn't come to the scene of an accident to be lectured, to lecture on who was injured and why they were injured. I've been guilty of that. I think we've all been guilty of that. But, but to save the world through him. For God did not send his son into the world to, be, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's a math that did not have. He showed up like an EMT. He didn't cast blame. He didn't say, you deserve, you don't. He said, you all deserve. And he saw that the world needed a blood transfusion. And he didn't go grab a bag. He gave his own blood. Because it was the only blood that was good enough that was pure enough, that was holy enough to be the sacrifice of all sacrifices of all time. John couldn't stand it. He had, he had to let us know. John the Baptist introduced him as the Lamb of God, and that would imply that this is a sacrifice on the Lord's behalf who came to take away the sins of the world. And then we get into the John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. God loved and he gave. Catch the math, the equation. God loved and he gave. And that's when what you do when you love. When you love somebody, you give, right? You give gifts. You do special things for them. That's the math. That's how we were designed. You give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. Now, I'll stop right there. The believes in. We hear that a lot. It could be easier, more easy translated to trust in. You can believe somebody's real and not trust them. Right? There's all kinds of people all over the world who can't deny the existence of Jesus and that he was real, and they believe that he was real, but that doesn't mean they trust him. There are people that have come on a Sunday all over the world who come to church and say they believe in Jesus, but they don't actually trust him. They give him portions of their life and say, you can come this far, God. Jesus, you can have this, but my bank account is mine. My sex life is mine. My kids are mine right? And that's what they do. And then it's confusing of like, why are not things working out? Like, why is there so much calamity? Why are they, you know, and it's like, because you're serving something else. You act like you believe, but you don't put your trust in. And that is what scripture is telling us. It says, you become a Christian by faith, not because of faith. 
Just because you have faith doesn't mean you're a Christian. That just means you know information. Now, do you put your trust in? That's the game changer. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you look at him on the stick, on the pole, and you understand what happened on the pole, and you look to the pole, that significant moment that the, all of the world has taken seriously, made jokes about, have been passive about, have been too serious about, all of these things, right? All, all this. But if you truly understand it, it'll keep you safe. You can have passage just like they experienced. You won't be lost or separated from God. Eternal life equals birth into a new family with a heavenly father. Paul explained joining the family or the kingdom of God as an adoption. And not just any adoption, adoption into royalty. He called us princes and princesses of the kingdom. That's what he called us. We're invited into an adoption we choose to go along with. We choose to be a part of it. And this is how we explain it to children. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. It's that simple. I'm not sure Nicodemus, old, old Nick, got it that night. Eventually he did. He risked his reputation by asking Pilate. Here's one of the parts, right? That's why this mattered so much. He risked his reputation by asking Pilate, can I have the body? Can I have the body? Nicodemus was one of the big ones that was responsible for making sure that Jesus had a grave. He did not have all his questions answered, but he knew enough to believe and have his trust in Jesus. Because in this time, Anybody that was crucified in this way had committed such a heinous crime that they saw them as cursed. And you don't bury the cursed. Ritually, you don't do that because then you would be cursed. Right? You're kind of transferring the curse to you because you're taking care of something that's unholy. You're showing care for something that doesn't seem godly. So it's, they would view that as sin. So you would be sinning and pulling away from it. So now you are cursed just like the body was. So for him to do this, he staked his reputation on it. He found a grave, sealed it up. Now you're seeing where this matters. Because later on, a story would be told that a seal was broken that no regular man could break, much less a woman who, who didn't have the strength of a man in this time. But the woman who's the one that found the person, that found the body was gone. And then ran and tells tell somebody. Now you can see the significance of the conversation he had with Nicodemus. And why? Nicodemus, I know you've got questions. You're not going to get answers, but I'm going to give you the great question. The one that you don't know how to ask, I'm going to answer it for you right now. And it's going to start a chain reaction now that Nicodemus got to be a part of the greatest unveiling this world has ever seen. He didn't have all his answers made for him. He didn't have them. He didn't have the answers. All of his questions were still up in the air. And maybe that's you. 
Maybe you have some questions that you don't have the answer to do today, to have, to be able to tell others, that give yourself the reassurance. Why not tell your heavenly Father regardless that you believe and are ready to see? Because God loved, he gave for you, right? So that we could believe, that you could believe, and that you could receive. So no matter where you are on your journey today, this is a healthy practice. This is a healthy practice that I do. And you're like, well, you're the pastor. You should know all these things. Yeah, every day I have to make a declaration that I believe. Because at any point, I could change the path. I could be so enamored with myself that I get so selfish that I decide I'm the God of my universe. I'm my God here on earth, and I'm going to take control because I think I can do it better than the God of the universe who created me. And it sounds silly, but we do it all the time. So every day, this is a great practice to have. That you, and the crazy thing is, is that you're never going to have all the answers. However, Jesus asked the right questions for us. And the closer, and this is one of the, the weirdest things that I've experienced in, in the beauty of being a Christian, being a Christ follower, is that I, I still have questions. Even from childhood, I have questions that I have never gotten answered about my God about Jesus. But the closer I get to Jesus and I start asking the right questions that he asked and getting those answers, all those other questions get smaller and smaller and they diminish. To me, that's pretty significant. It really changes things. Do not miss next week. Let's pray. Jesus, wow. Wow, you didn't even wait for us to fumble and mess it up. You could have, but you know, you knew there was a timeline and things needed to happen in a certain order. So thank you, Jesus, for interrupting Nicodemus. And I'm so glad that Nicodemus was intrigued enough to step out of his comfort zone, to see the things that you did and couldn't deny it, but still came to you. You might have been at night. You might have been scared, which is fine. We're all scared. We all have moments of fear. But thank you for cutting him off and giving him the truth immediately. And it, tra- it gave a tra- chain reaction for us so that one day we could understand what it meant when Jesus said, when you look up, the Son of Man is going to be on a pole. And when you look to him, you can have eternal life. Lord, for us individually in our own faith walks, I pray that we internalize this, we take it in, and we make the adjustments necessary so that not that just we're believing, but that we're putting our trust in you, that we're giving back the things that we think is ours, that you gave us, and that we're being truly honest about who you are in our life as we make you the number one thing. And Lord, as a church, as a body of believers, I pray that we continue to never take our eyes off of you, that we are always looking up, not to think that we have a better way of doing church or think we can do it this way and this is going to make the things happen and we're going to force people into the kingdom, but no, to truly be in relationship with you in everything that we do. So guide us through that, through this season. Lord, thank you for this time. Bless these people as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.